Today we're going to be in Acts chapter 18, starting with verse 1. The last time we saw Paul's excursion in Athens while waiting for Silas and Timothy. Today we're going to see Paul meet up with both Silas and Timothy in Corinth, which is about 50 miles from Athens, both in what's known as modern-day Greece. But first, I'd like to do things a little bit differently this morning, take you back to a little historical retrospect uh, at Greek history to help you understand the Greek mindset and the current situation that Paul's dealing with in Greece. And what this is going to do is, as you understand the Greek mindset, it's going to actually help to tie in last Sunday's sermon about Paul in Athens and today with Paul in Corinth. So what I want to do is, I hope you've had your coffee for the morning because I want to go into a little bit of high school, maybe geography and history. Pretty nice, huh? And basically, I want to walk you through what happened in history so you can understand the mindset of these people and what Paul is dealing with. The first thing that I want to talk about is uh, we know in 586 B.C. the Babylonians came. They conquered pretty much the known world at the time. Uh, They destroyed Jerusalem, took the Jews captives, and they were the, the rulers at the time. Seventy years later, the Persians came with the Medes, and they also, they conquered, and they conquered the known world. Okay, 333 B.C., Alexander the Great comes, and he conquers the known world with such swiftness that actually in the Bible prophecy, the Grecian Empire is seen as a leopard with four wings, and the four wings possibly uh, understanding to be his four generals after his death took over the kingdom. So that's, that's a little bit about where we're at. We're going to go basically quickly through a period of 490 B.C., through 333 B.C., and there's a reason for that. So quickly, as we look at the map, now this is a uh, newer map, so Paul didn't have his own airport at Athens. You can see that little plane there. So let's just pretend this is ancient Greece. Anyway, what you had is uh, you started with the, the, the Persians coming over under Xerxes, crossing the sea, going into Greece, and heading south. They wanted to dominate the Greeks, There was some resistance, so they were going to teach the Greeks a lesson. As they come south, they head through the Thermopylae Pass, which that movie 300 was based on. I didn't see the movie, but it was a glorified version of the 300 Spartans that held off really literally tens of thousands of Persian troops to give the city-states in Greece enough time to rebel against Persia. So what happens is eventually the uh, Persians get through the pass. All the Spartans are killed, but they took heavy losses. They head down to Athens, and they end up burning Athens to the ground. But what that did was it gave the city-states time to regroup, and the uh, Greek city-states, under collusion together, won decisive naval victories right here and sent the Persians back east, back to their homes with their tails between their legs. Second thing that happens is, now, what a city-state is, is basically, before Greece was a nation as we know it, there was the Spartans and the Athenians and the Corinthians, and they had their own walled cities, and they were a country unto themselves. They weren't known as really Grecians yet. So the next thing that happens is Greece is basically free from the, uh, the infidels, and they band together. But then there's what's called the Peloponnesian Wars. This is considered the Peloponnesian Peninsula. Say that three times fast. The Peloponnesian Peninsula, uh, basically controlled by the Spartans, there was a tug of war between the Athenians and the Spartans. What happens after that, fast forward to uh, Philip of Macedon, who comes and he says, hey guys, we're Greeks, we're great, we got a lot of things to offer. He unifies all the city-states together, and now we we start to see a unified Greece. 
Alexander the Great, who's Philip of Macedon's son, comes in, not only completes the unification process, but he says, hey, we're Greeks, we're great, let's go conquer the world. So Greece, you know, again, they, they head out to the known world, they take over from the Persians, and they dominate until the Romans come some years later. So there's your Greek history. Why do I bring that up? Well, just a few more things. The Greeks also, they revolutionized a lot. One of the things was warfare. The Greeks had this formation called the phalanx, and they would take three-quarter bronze shields and get behind them, and they would, they would make a wall of bronze. And they'd have these heavy spears. So when they advanced against their enemies, they, it was a wall of bronze, and they would take the spears out, and they would you know, impale their enemies. That's the way warfare was. And that pretty much, the, the phalanx uh, formation was named after phalangos, which means fingers in Greece, where we get the phalanges of today. And if you look at your fingers, they're tight, vertically and horizontally, and that's where the word came from. So they revolutionized warfare really until some centuries later when gunpowder was introduced. Then you have another revolution of warfare. So the Greeks were pretty good. Culture, they revolutionized the arts and government. A lot of our understanding of Western government comes from Greece, okay? If you study, I don't know how many history buffs here. As a matter of fact, if it wasn't for that, that battle at Thermopylae, and it didn't give the Greeks a chance to repel the Persians, there's a good possibility Western democracy as we know it would not exist. So it's pretty fascinating stuff. In the temporal world, the Greeks thought that they were great. And let's put spirituality aside, they were great. So they, they had a reason to be proud of themselves. But more importantly is now we're going to see the tie-in to biblical history and what Paul is dealing with when he's spreading the gospel across Greece. I get the impression that, from reading the scripture, that there wasn't much fruit in Athens where he started, except for a few names mentioned. And we know that the parable of the 99 sheep, if the shepherd loses one sheep and he can get that one sheep to come back, you know, the shepherd's happy. It's a picture of God, not wanting one person to perish. So I'm not trying to minimize that, but again, it didn't seem like there was a lot of fruit in Athens. There was no mention of a church in Athens and no official letter to any Athenian church. We have Philippians, Corinthians, Thessalonians, but no Athenians, right? It's sad because the, the Athenians were, they were nationalistic. They actually believed that they were a superior race. If you look at Greek history, they thought that they were a superior race. And Paul, when we looked at last Sunday, when he was debating with the Athenians, had to explain to them that they, we all came from one blood. There is no superior race. Remember that from last Sunday. They were proud. They were intellects. Do you ever come in contact with someone who's so smart that they don't seem to have common sense? <laughs> Some of you, a lot of you. Or someone who thinks they have all the answers. It's really hard to get through to that type of person. As a matter of fact, we have a family friend. She's a, a woman who grew up with my mother. And, you know, we talk about evolution versus creation. And she's a teacher. She's an atheist. And, uh, you know, we were talking about tectonic activity, which is basically shifts in the Earth's crust that uh, are responsible for volcanic activity and earthquakes. I think that's pretty textbook. I didn't say it exactly the way she liked it, so she would keep interrupting me. And, and we'd start all over again because I didn't say it perfect. And I, eventually I just threw my hands up in the air because I got frustrated, you know, trying to give the gospel and I can't get anywhere. So, you know, people that are just so smart, I, I really understand what Paul is going through here. And I want to turn to, if you would, we're going to take quite a few verses from 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1. 
So if you would turn to 1 Corinthians 1, starting with verse 18. And while you're flipping there, I'm going to give you a little history of this letter. We're going to to see that there was a Corinthian church that was established, obviously, at Corinth. And this is more of a corrective letter in 1 Corinthians. There's a lot of bad behavior, a lot of problems. We're going to go into that. Uh, But we do see that they changed their ways in 2 Corinthians, which is a blessing. But again, you can see the background. He's speaking to Greeks, okay? And he's speaking about contemporary culture. And you're going to see more of the Grecian mindset in this letter. So 1 Corinthians 1, starting with verse 18. He says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. How true. Those who mock the cross are obviously perishing because the cross is the way to heaven. It's the way to God. But to to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. We look to the cross, to everything that's good in our life as believers. Verse 19, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. What Paul is doing here is this, this verse was taken from all the way back in the Old Testament in Isaiah 29, 14. And what it basically said is that uh, the work that God carried out is good and powerful, regardless of what the wise people at the time said. If God was to consult with man and say, what do you think of this plan to get man to come back to me? How about the cross? I'll send my son to die. What he's basically saying is people look at that as, ah, that's a dumb idea. But God says, that's what I'm going to use to save mankind. Nobody could come up with a better idea. Verse 20, he says, where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? This covers the Jews, the Greeks, and the philosophers. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. The world through wisdom did not know God. With all man's wisdom, collectively, he couldn't save himself. And he couldn't know God with all man's wisdom collectively. It had to come through the message of the cross. Verse 22, for Jews request a sign, which was very common. Even Jesus addressed that. They were always looking for signs. And Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, foolishness. To the Jews, what do you mean our Messiah is going to be hanged on a tree? In the Old Testament, it says that anyone who's hanged on the tree is cursed. So you're saying our beloved Messiah is cursed. I can't get over that. It's a stumbling block. Okay? But what they didn't understand is the reason why he was cursed on the tree was because of our sin. He took our place. And to the Greeks, foolishness. A guy dying on the cross, that's how we get saved. But we're Greeks. We're brilliant. That doesn't make any sense. That's foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. If you take, if God has any weaknesses in intellect, if you take the lowest part or the foolishness of God and you compare it to the, the smarts of man collectively and exponentially, you still have such a gap that you can't fill that gap. You can't cross that gap. There's no comparison. Or what about the weakness of God with the strength of man? Again, the collectiveness of man. We could build technology, nuclear weapons, laser, whatever it is, and we're going to go up against God in his weakness. There's a chasm that can't be fixed. And we're going to see when Christ comes back, the nations of the world are actually going to try to fight him with their weapons. It's going to be foolishness. So we're going to see that actually play out in end times prophecy. 
Verse 26. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. I would say this. I'm not going to reinterpret the scripture, but the words are called. If you see them, they're in italics. If you have a study Bible, it means that the, uh, it means that the translators added those world words. They don't exist in the original language. What it may mean is that not many mighty, not many noble, not many according to the flesh actually come, actually come, actually accept the gift that was given to them. Verse 27, but God has fo- chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things or the in- insignificant or lowly things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are that no flesh should glory in his presence. So history shows that, you know, the Romans are in a period period of prosperity. Some lowly Jewish carpenter comes along living, you know, a a low means life, a humble person, gets himself into a little bit of trouble with the established religious system and gets hung on a cross. Now, not looking at with spiritual eyes, not looking at that spiritually, you would say, the world would say, not me, what a loser. You know, what, what did that accomplish? But God says, I will choose the weak things, you know, the lowly things, the base things, to put to shame the wise. Okay, so th- that's what you have going on here. That no flesh should glory in his presence. And what God is saying here is that if we do it by our means, then we have something to boast about. Because that's what we do. Anytime we have an accomplishment, whether in a, a, a counseling relationship, well, I got that couple back on track or uh, intellectually, or something at your job, you're a pioneer in your field. You know what? It happens. You get, you get a little bit of a big head about yourself. And God is saying, listen, I'm going to use the most base things that you could ever imagine to do something so incredible so that nobody could say, oh, I did it. Who here can boast of their salvation, that they did it on their own? Anybody? I certainly can't. I wouldn't even dream about it. That's, that's blasphemous. Uh, but verse 30 But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So basically what you see is through the cross, we get righteousness, sanctification and redemption. It's 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 the storehouse of heaven is opened up when we come to the cross. Verse 31, that it is written as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. So if we're going to glory at all, we need to glory in God's goodness and in nothing that we've done. Chapter 2, a few more verses. And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, I think Paul's a very humble person. Paul was a Pharisee, remember. He was taught under Gamaliel. If you Google Gamaliel, even under secular sources, he's revered as a great rabbi, a great intellect. So Paul was a bright guy. He knew that Bible inside and out. He, he was Hellenized in the Greek culture. I think that Paul, Paul just had it all. I mean, he had a little bit of everything. But Paul is saying, look, when I came to you, did I win you over through intellect? I claim to know nothing except Christ and him crucified. And that's pretty, again, that's a humbling thing for a guy like him to put all his intellect aside and to just be led by the Spirit. For I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. 
that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And I think that sums it up right there. When Paul deals with people, he deals with them in the spirit and not in the flesh. However, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages of our glory. A mystery. It's something that started out as hidden, but is revealed later on. And the wisdom of the ages, the plan that God had a long time ago, it's not like uh, before the first century, God was in a panic and he said, how am I going to save these people? I still can't figure it out. Somebody help me. He knew this. He knew this. As soon as the, that mankind fell, he knew how to redeem them and bring his children back to him. For which none of the rulers of this age knew. For if they had known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man, the things which God has prepared for those who love him. So now we're starting to build up what you're, what you're starting to understand about the Grecian mindset. And it's really sad. It's, I'm sure Paul grieved that, oh, these people have so much intellect. They have so many worldly things at their fingertips, but it's only going to burn for eternity. So is that wise to, to live a life of 70 or 80 or even 90 years or 100 and then to die and burn for eternity because what's going to happen to your wisdom at that point? Is that smart? It's really not wisdom at all. Okay, starting with verse 1. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome, and he came to them. So because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked. For by occupation they were tent makers. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was constrained by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So... Looking at the, um, the map again, Paul travels from Athens, 50 miles to Corinth. It's hard to see right here, but there's actually a little strip of land. It's called an isthmus, and the isthmus con con um, connects the mainland of Greece to the Peloponnesian Peninsula. I like saying that, Peloponnesian Peninsula. So here's Corinth, and here's the strip of Corinth. And what happens is you have the Aegean Sea, and over here is the Adriatic Sea, two major sea routes. Okay? A little bit more about Corinth is it was then the capital of Achaia, and it boasted, historical sources say, anywhere from 500,000 to maybe six or 700,000 people. For an ancient city, that was pretty good. And it was a huge commerce area. Now, let's just think about this in economic terms, right? You have Corinth and the strip of land. And if you were trying to get from one sea, maybe to Italy or from Rome over to here, uh, it would be you could either sail all the way around this peninsula, which they say was very treacherous, or, and this is what happened, you could go up to the isthmus, park your boat and your wares, drag it um, on rollers or however they did it across really a two to three mile strip over here and then put it back in the water at the Gulf of Corinth. Now, that saved a lot of time and a lot of broken ships. Now, think about this in economic terms. If I'm the mayor of Corinth and I want to make money, all I have to do is one of two things or both. What I could do is I could 
have a tax for those ships that are going across my land, or I could set up a resort town and make a lot of money, or I could do both. So Corinth did well for itself, okay? But Corinth, and you see this in, in a lot of nations, and you see it in our nation too, when countries, empires do very well over time, and they have so much, what happens is they become, they need of nothing, they become lazy, and what they do is they become debauch. You know, they have every type of vice that you could imagine. So Corinth was known for its wickedness and its vice. It had the temple of Aphrodite, which had women who were prostitutes, who would serve as whoever. And then there was also the temple of Apollo, who had male prostitutes. So there was something for everyone in Corinth. Um, Corinthians were so bad and so ill-behaved that there was a Greek term coined just for them. It was called Corinthiazomai. And if it said, if you were Corinthiazomai, it meant you behaved like a Corinthian. And again, just to show you how bad it was, if somebody called you a Corinthian girl, that was an insult, okay, in that culture. Now, they were different from the Athenians in that they had idolatry and brazenness, but instead of, in lustful idol- or instead of um, uh, intellectual and educational idolatry, it was in lustful idolatry. And I would ask this question, are we better in our culture, any better? It seems like we have the best of, best of both worlds, don't we? We have the, the intellect and the, the high and mighty and, and prideful idolatry of the Athenians, and we also have the lustful idolatry of the Corinthians. In the United States, we have everything that we could possibly want. If you're into any type of vice, it's very easy to get. What's really sad is I think about a recent uh, event that occurred with uh, uh, Governor Spitzer of New York. I'm sure of you, all of you have heard that on the news. He got caught with a prostitute. His career is pretty much over, and, you know, that's the outpouring of sin. It's well-deserved. But Ashley Dupree is now a household name, isn't it? 22-year-old girl, they say she's a call girl. No, she's a prostitute. Now, does it mean we should throw stones at her? No. Hopefully somebody will reach out to her. But this girl went from being a hooker to someone who's now got a music contract. She's going to be on talk shows, and she's going to make millions of dollars for being a prostitute. What is wrong with our society? Listen, what are our young ladies taught in our society? They're taught that if you bring the shirt down a little bit lower or hike up the skirt, you'll get attention. And then when you become sexually active, if you use it to your advantage, you could actually do well financially. And if you could work two or three guys, you'll do very well for yourself. Let me tell you something, folks. Our young ladies, without Jesus Christ and without good parents, they don't stand a chance in our society. And forget about the young men. They're just like dumb ox led to the slaughter. You know what I mean? They're just, come on. <laughs> Keep an eye on those, those young men, all right? So the point being, getting back to our lesson, is that, so a lot of you have teenage sons, I, I see. The good news is, though, the good news is that as bad as things were in Corinth, a church was established there. That's pretty amazing. So in the... In the in a cesspool of moral decay, you had a, a church there that was a beacon of light to all those people. It didn't come without its problems, but it was a beacon of light. The Athenians were too smart. Eh, a few people got saved, but for the most part, they're like, we're not interested in the whole guy dying on the cross thing. But the Corinthians came to know the Lord. And in our country, where we have both qualities of Athens and Corinth, you know what? There's hope for us in this country. There is hope. You know, keep giving the gospel. The economy supposedly is on its way down. When people start losing money, then they start wondering what they're going to do. 
And a lot of times that's a good way to introduce the Lord Jesus into their lives because they're looking for something. And what they think they're going to find it in, they're not going to find it in. Verse 2, there's a decree that goes out there. Um, Claudius sends all the Jews away from Rome. Well, who was that? Claudius was the emperor, Claudius Caesar, A.D. 41 through 54, and he was sandwiched between Caligula before him and Nero after him. Not great guys by any stretch of the imagination. And according to the historian Suetonius, the Jews were expelled from Rome because of rioting. So Aquila and Priscilla, both Jews, had to leave and find another home. And they come to Corinth and they meet up with Paul. Now, in, verse, in chapter 18, we're introduced to Aquila and Priscilla. These guys are a husband and wife ministry team. I mean, these guys are the bomb. They got it going on. I mean, they're just a blessing to Paul. Uh, they're, um, they're not prideful. They're kind of behind-the-scenes people. As a matter of fact, when they deal with uh, Apollos, who's a great charismatic preacher, they're the strength behind him because all he knew was the baptism of John, and they corrected him, and they helped to bring the full gospel to him. And when he, go, he went out, he preached that gospel. No doubt they were the strong, silent force that was behind him. But I just want to say this. They were equally yoked. This is one of the best examples in Scripture of a husband and wife who were equally yoked. And I'm speaking to the singles right now. If you have a desire to get married, or if you're dating somebody, or you're not married yet, you've got to be equally yoked. Because I'll tell you what, if you're on fire for the Lord, and your counterpart is not, and you get married, when all the scintillating stuff wears off, and all the, you know, the, you're not walking on air anymore, and you get back to reality of your relationship, if you're on fire, and your spouse is not on fire, you know what's going to happen? They're going to put out your fire. It's going to be snuffed out because you're going to constantly wear against each other. But I want to serve the Lord, but I, I don't. And listen, if neither one of you want to serve the Lord, I guess you're equally yoked there because neither one of you care about serving the Lord. But if you're on fire for the Lord, really pray about the decision when you get married and choose a spouse who's on fire for the Lord. I've got to tell you, I wouldn't have made it this far in ministry with all the ups and downs and the pitfalls if it wasn't for my wife who has just as much, if not more, of a desire for the Lord that I do. And I'm blessed, and really you're blessed because of our relationship, our marriage. It's very important that you find a spouse who's got the same desire for the Lord that you do. And listen, if your spouse isn't, and maybe you came to the Lord afterwards, just keep praying, because God can do miracles. Okay, Quill and Priscilla. The next thing we, we go into is in verse 3, we see that uh, Paul makes tents to support himself. Uh, he has a, you know, his business going there. Uh, he, he has to make money and he's hooked up with Aquila and Priscilla. Now, the type of tent that was made was a treated hide or hair, and the irony is that the Roman soldiers needed these portable tents. When they would move their troops from place to place, they would need these portable tents for some shelter for their troops, and they would often buy these tents. I just find it funny that the Roman soldiers would buy tents, probably from Paul, and could you imagine how many soldiers he witnessed to as they were buying the tents from him? So, you know, everything is for a reason. At times, Paul received financial aid, and at times we see, and we're going to kind of take that apart a little bit, at times we see that Paul worked to support himself. Paul was not a stranger to work. Paul was not lazy. And Paul also saw that there were a lot of itinerant preachers, preachers that would go from town to town, philosophizers, and they would just go and they would set up a crowd and maybe they'd be charismatic, and they'd take donations from people. And all they did was they lived off the people. Maybe they didn't care what they were saying. Even they might not have believed it themselves, but that was their way of making a living. And Paul did not want to be associated with those people. A few points to ponder here. 
God is not seeking lazy missionaries. Missions are not for sightseeing or going to the, the nicest places just to see the sights. That's what not missions is for. Missions is to labor in the field and produce fruit for the kingdom. We support, uh, we support a few missions, uh, missionaries, and you know what? They don't have it easy. Russia, Guatemala, Afghanistan, Africa, and we even support missions to the inner cities to preach to the gang members. So they don't have it easy, and nor should they. It should be a calling that I'm just going to go out and do this because I really believe the Lord's put it on my heart, notwithstanding all the other things that surround it. The second thing is, I don't believe that God blesses laziness at all. Do you realize that laziness is a sin? If you look in the Old Testament, if you look in Proverbs, if you look throughout the Scripture, even the New Testament, the sluggard, the sloth, the lazy person is a sinner. And you know what? We don't talk about it that much in our society because there are... There's a lot of laziness. When a country does so well and is so built up and there's so many things that are offered to people, it develops a laziness. And God doesn't want laziness. And he certainly doesn't want laziness in ministry. He's not looking for that. If God gives you a calling, you know what? Habakkuk too. Habakkuk got the calling. He received it. He was instructed to write it down on the tablets. And he was also instructed to run with that vision. Tell as many people because that's the calling that God gave you. If somebody is calling you in your life to do something, do it. Don't procrastinate. And don't be lazy about it. It's, it's your thing. You do it. What I was really blessed. Um, just a little side note about laziness. There was a different generation years ago. I had the good fortune and the privilege and the honor to officiate at the funeral of Marty Conti, one of our elders, his father. Now, this was a man from the old school. He worked two and three jobs to put food on the table. I know, Tommy, your parents were the same way, too, and a lot of you here. It was from the old school. You know, they worked, and times were hard, but these men went out, and they worked, and they worked, and they worked so they could support their family. Those were men to me. I, I just have a pet peeve with laziness. And for me, myself, I've been working since I'm 13 years old. I could tell you the first job that I had as a busboy at Bagel Express in Staten Island. Right, Martin, Staten, remember that place? <laughs> so... You know, I'm no stranger to work as long as I got, you know, and again, of course, there's always a caveat. If you're disabled or this is, this, you have a, a physical malady, nobody expects you to go out there. That's what, you know, other people are around to help you out. But I just don't have tolerance for laziness. It's just a thing with me. Okay, next point. Okay. <laughs> Verse 5. Eventually, Silas and Timothy catch up with Paul. And this is a blessing in ministry. These people were like-minded with Paul. These people served with Paul out of a pure heart and vision, okay? And they didn't look for a title and glory, and they didn't look to be carried by Paul. They were just as excited for the Lord as he was. And Paul speaks about some of these young men as his true sons in the faith. And it's just a blessing and a joy knowing that people are laboring with you when you're in ministry. I, had a, um, I have a, such a great time with my board members when I have board meetings and my elders. And the last elders meeting, we really didn't have much of an agenda, but we sat around and we just, you know, opened up to each other. We were in prayer and we just talked about what the Lord is doing in the church and what the Lord is doing through our respective ministries. It just was a, it's just a joy to serve the Lord and to labor in his field. You know, it's not, it's not really like work. And I also think about it, and he's not here today, and I'm purposely saying it because he's not here today because he'd be very embarrassed. But our worship leader, Dave Lawrence, you notice he's not here. He's here every Sunday. Maybe one or two Sundays out of the year, he's not here. And he asked my permission if he could go somewhere, if he had a prior engagement, to be there. But Dave's a guy who's proactive. 
He's got vision, and he's humble. I ask him to do something, he just does it. If it wasn't unethical, I'd try to clone the guy. So, he's, he's you know, people like that are just, uh, just a joy. And verse 5, it says that Paul was constrained by the Spirit. Now, I looked up in my, um, I was, had a little trouble with that. I looked, went to my Greek lexicon, and an alternate translation is that he was absorbed in the Spirit, Paul was. The Spirit wanted the Jewish people to hear the good news of salvation of their beloved Messiah. So Paul was absorbed in the Spirit to do this thing, to go out to the Jews and give them the gospel. And we know that Silas and Timothy brought an offering to, to Paul to be able to free him up from having to make tents for that time and now be freed up because of the financial money he received to continue just to preach the gospel so that he could be full-time absorbed in the Spirit. And as I look around, we, you know, uh, a lot of our smaller Calvary chapels have come from the big church, the sending church, Calvary Chapel, Oldbridge. And I'm in, I'm in pretty much you know, contact with some of these, these pastors, churches our, side, our size may be smaller. And the cool thing is they're all laboring like, like Paul did. They're tent makers. You know, I go out and I go on patrol. You know, some of these guys go out and they're carpenters or they're plumbers. But they're working two jobs to support the church because they really believe in what they're doing. I mean, my weekend looks like yesterday uh, we had the men's breakfast in the morning. And then I put on my uniform. I went out to work. And today I'm doing the, the message today. And when I'm done here, I suit up and I go out to work. Now, I'm not saying that because I'm complaining. I actually enjoy doing it. To me, it's a privilege and an honor to serve the Lord. And if we're not looking at it with that heart, we have the wrong heart and the wrong motivation. Verse 6. What Paul happens is he finds that they oppose him and they blaspheme. And he shakes his garments and says to them, your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now I will go to the Gentiles. So Paul shakes his garments, and it was similar to what we learned in Jesus' time where he said, if you go to a village or a town and you preach the gospel and they reject you and they don't receive you, when you leave that town, take off your sandals and click them together and leave even the dust there and go on and move your way. You're not responsible for them. They're on their own. Basically, I wash my hands of my responsibility towards you. Now, you know, shaking his garments may have been a little dramatic on Paul's part, but I think the more I read about Paul, I think somehow he was part Sicilian. That's just a, <laughs> it's just a hunch I have there. And I can say that, okay? I can say that. You know what that means. But this type of behavior, listen, I'm free from my responsibility to you. This really comes from the Old Testament. If you're taking notes and you want to read it on your own, Ezekiel 3, verses 17 through 21. Ezekiel 3, 17 through 21 and Ezekiel 33, verses 1 through 9. Ezekiel 33, 1 through 9. And what God is saying through Ezekiel basically is this. If you're sent to the people and you warn them of danger, danger is coming, or judgment is coming, the Lord is angry, you know, you better repent and clean up your ways. And that happened a lot. And you, as, as the person that God has called, don't do what you're called to do, and something happens to those people, their blood is on your hands. You're going to be responsible for what happens to them. He says the same thing to the watchman. If the watchman, they had these towers, and the watchman would, 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 would stay up there, and they would see if the advancing army or the enemy was coming, and they would have to warn the people. They weren't supposed to be sleeping on duty. They would warn the people, here comes danger. If you're a watchman and, and danger comes, and you don't tell those people and something happens to them, that's going to be on your hands. Now, conversely, uh, God said that if you get the message of judgment or danger or repentance, and you give it to the people, and they ignore you, and something happens to them where they die, 
you're free from your responsibility because you did what I told you to do. So it's a really good portion of scripture in Ezekiel. Paul was freed of his obligations and he went to the Gentiles. Now, how can we apply that to our lives? Well, it's our job to preach the gospel. The Bible says to go and to make disciples of all the nations. And if you preach the gospel, sure, you know, somebody may say, well, I'm really not sure. Can you tell me some more? Well, can you come back next week and tell me some more? That's great. That's what you do. But it isn't our responsibility for them to be saved. Now, sometimes it could be pride. Well, I'm going to save that person. Well, I'm going to win that person back. It's a pride issue. Could be. But our obligation is done when we have done the best we can to present the gospel message to them, to tell them the truth, to give them the whole picture. And whatever they do from that point on, you're relieved of your responsibility. We should not have guilt if they don't come. You've done your job. Now, that doesn't mean you can't meet with them again and you can't continue to pray for them, that you should, but, you know, you're pretty much fulfilling your obligation. Verse 7. It says, And he departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshipped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed and were baptized. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision, quote, Do not be afraid, but speak, and do not keep silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. And he continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. So we see a few things here. Justice had a house that was pretty much next door to the synagogue, and Crispus was a synagogue ruler that was converted, and many were saved, and many were baptized, and a church was formed. Now, Justice was an asset to the church, and probably the impetus to Crispus's conversion by keeping Paul and his, his you know, companions there, which led to many people getting saved and a church starting there. But possibly none of this would have happened if it wasn't for Paul being rejected in the other place to move him on to this place. So there's times that we look at life and, you know, we, we feel a little maybe sad or dejected because, you know, you're given the gospel, you're trying to be a light at your job, and you just feel like, you know, it's, it's just failing, it's not working. I don't have that gift. But you don't know how one situation may move you to somewhere else, and there may be fruit later on. Or maybe that person that you talk to somewhere down the line um, comes to the Lord. I know with me, many people might have thought they wasted their time with me. But you know what? When I finally came to the Lord, I always remembered all those wonderful people, those good Christians who spent their time with me when I kind of seemingly ignored them. But you know what? It, it stayed in my heart. Isaiah 55, 10 through 11. It compares the precipitation cycles of the water and raining, you know, the raining of the crops to preaching the gospel. Our job is to give the seed, keep sowing the seed. It's God's job to do something with that seed, help it to take root and move forward. So we have a job to do, but we shouldn't be burdened. Giving the gospel, being an example, should never be a burden. It should be out of joy and enjoyment. Okay, the last part I want to focus on if you have maybe a study Bible uh, verse 9 and 10, the letters are in red, indicating that it's the Lord Jesus himself speaking to him. Okay? What is in here? Why is Jesus saying this? I'll read it again. Do not be afraid, but speak, and do not keep silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. Going back to the beginning of the sermon, remember, dealing with the Greeks, we talked about the Greek mindset. Was Paul just exhausted dealing with the hard-hearted Greeks? Was that a possibility? Probably was. Was Paul this close to packing it in? 
It would be conjecture if we said that, but maybe he was frazzled. We all get frazzled, right? Were his ailments getting the best of him? We know from the scripture that Paul had ailments, so much so that he begged the Lord three times to remove the ailment from him, and the Lord didn't. Now, I don't know the answer to that, and if I said anything, it would just be conjecture. But God and Paul knew. And I would ask you this question. When I read this, you know, sometimes I read the Bible and I read it a few times because I want to get as much out of it as I can. When I read this, it kind of stopped me in my tracks because this is the Lord speaking. Because it really spoke to my heart. And I would ask the question, what about you? When you read this, what does it say to you? There was a sister who called in a prayer request last week and she said, quote, I am at the end of my rope. How many of you have been at the end of your rope at one time or another? We're human beings. It happens, right? We're frail and our emotions are frail. What is it in your life that's causing you maybe some struggles right now that you need to hear this? Could it be financial? Who's not going through financial trouble? Could it be a relationship issue? As long as you live in this world and you deal with other people, you're going to have relationship issues. You're not going to get along with everybody, right? Could it be your children? We're always concerned for our children, and even when they grow up, we hope that they make the right choices. Could it be general stress? How many here today are coming in, and you put on the smile, and you shake your hands, hello, brother, hello, sister, yes, yes, the Lord is great, but inside you're struggling, you know, you're, you're under stress. What about a sin struggle? That's not very popular to talk about in church. Some churches omit that, omit that completely. But if you're really trying to serve the Lord and you're having an issue with sin, it's going to bother you. It's going to bother you. And you're going to say, Lord, I thought I would be past this by now. What's going on? Fill in the blanks. But these are the best words. For I am with you and no one will hurt you. Yes, in Paul's instance, it was literal. It was physical. Paul, keep pressing on. It's something that I've directed you to do. Don't worry about those people. I know they're plotting against you, but I'm stronger than that. It's like uh, Psalm 23. He prepares a table for me in the midst of my enemies. That's a picture of, you know, you're by yourself and all your enemies are, are gaping at you with the knives and the, the, the swords and all that stuff. And God just prepares a table for you in the midst of your enemies. Do you trust him enough to know that those enemies won't hurt you? Do you trust him enough? I have many in this place, he says. This reminds me of Elijah. He says, Paul, don't worry. I have many people in this place. It's not just you. There's other people with you. Remember the story of Elijah and his victory on Mount Carmel? You know, he was victorious about, you know, against those prophets of Baal. And then he gets word that the wicked queen Jezebel says, I'm going to get you. And he flees. He takes off. He's scared. He's frightened. And the Lord says, what are you doing here? I have 7,000 back there that haven't bowed the knee to Baal. And I'm going to be with you. Come on, pick yourself and go back in there. It's going to be okay, Elijah. And that's what I see here. Number one, it's a comfort knowing that others are in your shoes. We were designed to be social people. We were designed, God designed us. God designed us to have relationships. Relationships with him, relationships with our children, relationships with our siblings, with our spouses, with our friends. God designed us as relationship-oriented people. So sometimes it's comforting to know that, number one, others are in your shoes and going through the same thing you're, do, you're going through, or others that are there to help to lift you up when you're down. Oh, if only somebody understood what I was going through. You know what? Find somebody you trust, open up. Maybe they will understand what you're going through. Maybe they've been there. Right now, there's somebody who needs to hear this message. And I tell you, I'm, just, I'm running with this one because as soon as it, it hit me, as I read this, it stopped me in my tracks because it's so comforting. Do not be afraid, but speak. Do what I ask you to do. I'm God. I'm your Father. I love you. 
go ahead and do it. And do not keep silent, for I am with you. To know that the God of the universe, the almighty God who created everything that you see, is with you. What a comfort that is. And no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. I think about the rubber band illustration. You know, rubber band has its, its stretching point, like right around here, right now. And sometimes you may be here, and sometimes you might be here. Some of you may be here. But if you're with the Lord and you trust him, you won't be here. God will, will make it so that you don't get to this point. He won't destroy you. The Bible says that the good work that God has started in you, you may say, well, what has he really done in my life? It doesn't matter where you are with the Lord. He started something in your life. Wherever you are, God is faithful to complete that good work that he started in you. He will finish it. He will not let you be destroyed. You may be pressed in. You may be squeezed. You may feel like lemonade sometimes, but he's not going to let you be destroyed. So I just want to leave you with this. Deuteronomy 31 and Hebrews 13 both speak about it. It's so important. Let me leave you with these comforting words. The Bible says this, God is with you and God will not leave you nor forsake you. Let's pray.